Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. As a new school year begins, New York's largest teachers' unions and other education experts are calling for better responses to threats of violence. Educators are still reeling from the mass school shooting in Texas last spring, as well as the May shooting that killed 10 people in Buffalo. More now from the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt. The union leaders say schools need to be better prepared for the grim reality that classrooms are increasingly a target for mass shootings and a setting for other forms of violence. The gunman in Uvalde, Texas, is accused of killing 21 people, 19 elementary school children, and two teachers, and the man accused in the mass shooting at the top supermarket in Buffalo in May allegedly threatened to commit a murder-suicide at his high school near Binghamton one year earlier. New York State United Teachers President Andy Pilata says students and teachers also face an increasing number of more minor but still violent incidents. He names a few that occurred during the past school year. May 5th in the Hudson Valley, uh, schools were plagued by violence and bomb threats. May 25th, Syracuse, there was an eighth grader who brought a gun to school for protection. He told the officials in the school. New York City's United Federation of Teachers President Michael Mulgrew says hardening school security has not been the answer. Instead of talking about arming teachers and locking down schools as prisons, we have to start with the issue of give the school community what it needs to actually start dealing with the issues that our children are facing. The unions have issued a report calling for better coordination among school administrators, teachers, and even students to both react to potential threats and to stop them before they happen. The report recommends standard school safety procedures that use methods proven to be effective in identifying potentially dangerous situations before they escalate. Jackie Shieldkraut, a professor at SUNY Oswego and a national expert on mass shootings, worked on the task force that wrote the report. She also worked with the Syracuse City School District to implement safety programs beginning shortly after the 2018 Parkland, Florida shooting that killed 14 students and three staff members. Shieldkraut says every school in the district had a different policy for dealing with a potentially dangerous situation. That created confusion, she says. Now all schools follow the same procedure, using tactics that are proven to be successful. She says another goal is to make lockdown drills less scary for children. That do not raise the trauma of a drill. So the same way that we don't set schools on fire to practice a fire drill, we don't have to simulate active shooter drills or active shooter situations to practice a lockdown. The unions say schools also need to hire more staff with expertise in dealing with violence and students with mental health issues, including more nurses and school psychologists and social workers. Luckily, they say there is money in this year's state budget to do that. 
Task Force member Dwayne Serbone is the president of the Pittsford District Teachers Association near Rochester and the head of the Monroe County Federation of Teachers. He says more work needs to be done to prevent violent situations from escalating in the first place. He says in many cases, students know more about impending trouble than do the teachers. Most of us as high school teachers, middle school teachers, we have a student for 40 minutes a day. So I may hear something second period that seems a little concerning to me. Somebody else hears something later in the day. How do we open up that communication and begin to have people having the proper conversations that are here to support our students. But he says they might not want to tell on their friends or classmates. The task force recommends setting up anonymous tip lines. Finally, the task force recommends that the wide availability and large number of guns should be reduced. They say there should be a federal ban on high-capacity magazines and universal background checks for gun purchases. And they say the federal government should adopt laws similar to New York's to restrict those under 21 from buying guns and to adopt national red flag laws. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. After New York's concealed carry gun law was struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court in June, Governor Kathy Hochul called a special session to respond. Days later, she signed new legislation that prohibits carrying guns in so-called sensitive places, including schools, churches, government buildings, and parks. Officials from five of the 12 counties fully or partially in the Adirondacks joined with the two assembly representatives from the region this week to call for clarification on how the six-million-acre Adirondack Park will be affected by the new law. The Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley was there and filed this report. The new law goes into effect Thursday. Assemblyman D. Billy Jones, a Democrat representing the 115th District, says clarification is still needed on how the definition of park applies to the Adirondack Park. Most of the people here are very frustrated on a response or non-response we're getting on that. We've heard a couple of different things out of the uh, governor's office. I have made several requests to uh, the governor's office to get us guidelines and guidance on that. There are many questions when it comes to the interpretation of a public park and how does the Adirondack Park translate into that. Matt Simpson has had a concealed carry permit for over 30 years. The Republican represents the 114th Assembly District, most of which is in the Adirondacks. Right now, I can't tell you whether I'm legally able to have my handgun with me, as I have for the last 30 years. And here we are two days from when it becomes law, and we don't know where we stand. But if we make a mistake, it's a Class E felony. When I was on the floor, when this bill was being debated, the question was asked very succinctly. If I was hiking on the Northville to Placid Trail, would I be able to carry my legally permitted handgun? The answer was no. Subsequently, there was a statement out of the governor's office that said, that's not true. But here we are, we still don't know. Adirondack Park Local Government Review Board Executive Director Jerry Delaney said their concerns extend beyond the legal definition of park and include how the bill was passed. This law should have had public comment. We have citizens who honestly are worried about whether or not they are going to commit a felony as they're traveling when you're driving down a state road with forest preserve on both sides of it that becomes a park how do we deal with private land that has conservation easements on it with signs that clearly state that it's a recreational area that is administered by the state of new york is that a park or is that private land 
A request for a comment to Governor Hochul's press office was not returned. On July 29th, the Democrat was in Lake Placid and was asked about the definition of park and regional concerns. When we think about the vast expanse of the Adirondack Park, this is not included as one of the parks under the definition because it's unique. It's got private property, it's got businesses, it has downtowns, as well as the forest preserves. So people's rights are protected here. We made sure of that. After hearing about her response from a month earlier, Assemblyman Simpson said more than verbal assurances are necessary. I don't think we can say, well, this is really what we meant when it's said in the record established in the assembly floor that absolutely the forest preserve is included. So we need legislation. I think that if we don't have legislation, this will be litigated, and I think it needs to be in law and statute, written in a way that can be enforced. The Adirondack Park Local Government Review Board passed a resolution calling on the governor and legislative leaders, quote, to exempt the Adirondack Park as a sensitive area, unquote, in the new law. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shar. Talk, Alan. New York City will begin posting signs proclaiming the iconic tourist destination Times Square as a gun-free zone. Under a sweeping new state gun law that goes into effect today, it would be one of the scores of sensitive places, including parks, churches, and theaters that would be off-limits for guns. The new rules are meant to address a U.S. Supreme Court decision that further expanded Second Amendment gun rights when it invalidated a century-old law that required gun owners to prove they had a compelling need to carry. Meanwhile, New York Attorney General Tish James said her office successfully defended the law in federal court, denying a motion for a preliminary injunction brought by the gun owners of America, allowing the legislation to go into effect as planned. So New York strikes back with a law designed to protect quote, sensitive areas. Well, the one thing that I would recommend is that everybody do as I have done in the past, walk through Times Square at a busy time. You will see a teeming, teeming mass of people, and you better believe that keeping guns out of that area is extremely important. Nevertheless, it's easier said than done. And we know that guns are coming into New York State from other states and that they're being brought in and that they're being used and criminal activity results. And therefore, it is something that every person who lives in New York ought to be hoping gets cleared up one way or the other. But right now, things are bad. Alan, this week you talked with William Will Barclay, the Assembly Minority Leader. He's a Republican and quite a minority in New York State. But one of the things you asked him about, it's kind of interesting, you have the chair of the Republican Party in New York, Nick Langworthy, who won the primary for the congressional race against Carl Palladino, the more-to-the-right candidate. And if he wins that, that's Langworthy now, if the chairman wins that race in the general election, 
who will the Republicans pick as the new chairman? And one of the rumors that's out there, someone we've had on our air recently and had many times over the years, and a former minority leader of the Assembly Republicans, John Faso. Now, Barclay said that no moves have been made yet, obviously. Langworthy is still the chairman. But he didn't necessarily rule it out. Yeah, but if you listen to his language, I think the totality was, let's make sure before we proceed that we have explored our options. What would it mean if Faso got back in the game? Well, Faso is a strong-willed fellow. Every time we have Faso on, we get, well, I would like to say a ton, but a lot of reaction to him. Republicans seem to like him, and Democrats seem to hate him. So it is something that bears watching. Faso has been a lightning rod in many ways in the Republican Party, and whether or not he can succeed in Democratic blue state New York is another whole story. Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok. Nauman Hussein, the operator of the company involved in the 2018 Schoharie limousine crash that killed 20 people, is heading for a new trial after a judge this week rejected a 2021 plea agreement at what was to be a formal sentencing hearing. The Legislative Gazette's Ian Pickus reports. Judge Peter Lynch said in Schoharie County Court that he would not agree to the plea deal sentence of five years of probation and would instead recommend jail time. Hussein's lawyers then withdrew the plea, setting the stage for a new trial. The stunning turn of events was captured by Spectrum News. Why not say something now? How do you feel? We saw your emotions in there. Hussein had pleaded guilty to 20 counts of criminally negligent homicide last September. The prestige limousine vehicle was found by National Transportation Safety Board investigators to have poorly maintained and largely, if not entirely, non-operational rear brakes. Hussein's attorney maintained it was the substantial and intervening acts by others, including Mavis Discount Tire in Saratoga Springs, that led to the crash. The company had taken the stretch SUV limo to Mavis for repairs. New York Congressman Paul Tonko, a Democrat from the 20th District, says the development is welcome news. Going to trial does much, uh, provides much justice for the families impacted. So many of the families, we have been working with them. I know them personally because it impacted my hometown heavily. Uh, but this is about justice. And, uh, you know, I think the, uh, the families will be um, welcoming the, the opportunity to go to trial. Uh, which uh, I think is about speaking to the justice. Uh, nothing can reverse the, the, the loss and the terrible tragedy they've had to uh, absorb, but uh, justice served in, 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 a, in a courtroom will be a powerful thing for them. Tonko's hometown is Amsterdam, where many of the victims were from. Speaking in Albany just after the news, Tonko said he is still waiting for a response from the FBI about his calls for more information about Hussein's father, Shahed, reportedly an FBI informant, and the family's ties to the agency. We want a full, um, you know, a, a full detailed explanation of, of uh, their activities and the entire uh, process. Investigators say the limousine carrying 17 passengers celebrating a birthday party barreled down the road at more than 100 miles per hour and crashed into the Apple Barrel County Store's parking lot, where two bystanders and all of the occupants, including the driver, were killed. As part of the plea agreement reached last September, Hussein was in line to avoid jail time, 
serving probation and 1,000 hours of community service. Families of the victims were outraged after last year's hearing. We're all mad. We're all so mad. Mary Ashton and her husband Kyle lost their son Michael Christopher Ukai, a Marine veteran who was also celebrating his 34th birthday on the day of the crash when several friends were on their way to the Omegang Brewery in Cooperstown in the limo. Hussein was free on bail after Wednesday's hearing. Lawsuits were filed against Prestige Limousine, the Husseins, the State of New York, and Mavis Discount Tire. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Ian Pickus. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us on the Legislative Gazette this week is David Albert. He is the New York State School Board Association's Chief Communications and Marketing Officer, and he's here to talk about the New York State School Boards Association as we head into the school year. Welcome, David. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Now, there's been a look at what schools are focusing on this year, finding that there have been learning gaps as the result of the pandemic. And that's because of the interrupted instruction. Schools are needing to address this in some way. Where are you guys on the New York State School Boards Association when it comes to this? Well, you know, we're actually doing everything we can to support boards of education around the state as they begin the school year. And you're exactly right. What we're seeing is that one of the big issues, if not the biggest issues, as we enter the school year is overcoming some of the learning gaps that were brought on by the pandemic. So we had, you know, a couple of years of kind of on and off learning, uh, remote learning. In some cases, uh, students didn't even have access to the appropriate technology to learn, you know, through the remote system. Or, you know, they just maybe weren't as engaged as, as we would like them to be. And so for a variety of reasons, remote learning really didn't necessarily turn out to be, uh, you know, as good as classroom learning. And it was, it was really the best alternative at the time, given the state of the pandemic. But we've come to find out that students, I think nationally, are behind in reading and math. And so this year, there's a lot of uh, federal funding that schools have to use to try to overcome some of these learning gaps. So we're seeing them put in place, you know, extended day programs, uh, summer school programs, which took effect this past summer, but also going forward to next summer. So lots of programs to try and bring students back up to where they need to be. You know, in many cases, we're not necessarily talking about serious learning gaps. It might be a few months, three or four months behind where they should be, uh, but Again, that's really the challenge for schools this year, and they're also looking to hire uh, teachers, teacher aides, you know, staff that is involved in instructional support to try and get students back to uh, where they need to be. When it comes to school boards, much like what's happened to many employers because of the pandemic, there was what we call the great resignation. Many people reevaluating their jobs, resigning and moving on. And we've seen quite a turnover when it comes to school board members as well because of COVID-19, but also because of some of the politics surrounding instruction of schools and subject matter, including critical race theory, that have angered parents and I'm guessing also impacted the turnover when it comes to school board members. 
Yeah, there's no question that some of the tension at school board meetings contributed to some incumbent board members just deciding to call it quits. Uh, there are a number of reasons why board members uh, decided not to run for re-election this year. We did have more members not seeking re-election than we've seen in the past. I mean, typically I'd say 20 to 25 percent of board members up for re-election decide not to run again. This year it was 30 percent. So we saw a, a larger number of members deciding not to run. They gave us a number of reasons. Uh, many of them had to do with just the time commitment involved in school board service. Uh, some had to do with you know just wanting to be with family, you know spending more time with family. Maybe they had children who had graduated from high school or moving on. But yes, we also saw some of them just you know did not want to deal with some of the tension and you know the contentious school board meetings. So we did see um, new, more newcomers this year than uh, we've seen in the past. And we've actually seen a trend over the last two or three years of, even though more incumbents generally get reelected than newcomers in any given year, those who choose to run, we're still seeing fewer and fewer incumbents uh, taking their seats back on boards, more newcomers. So perhaps it's a changing of the guard, the percent of uh, incumbents who have been reelected back in 2020 was 70%. So 70% of those incumbents who decided to run for re-election won. This year it was 55%. So more first-time board members are uh, joining school boards. That's actually good, right? I mean, these are important positions. Give people in the listening audience an idea of what it means, what your role is as a school board member. Yeah, so that's a great question, and, and I'm glad you asked that. So it, it is important for uh, for people to know the role of school boards. I think it's easy uh, many times for for us to not think much about, about school boards. I mean, we tend to focus a lot on what's happening in Washington, D.C. or Albany because they grab the headlines many times. Our, our focus is on, on what's happening uh, you know, in state and national government. But quite honestly, if you look at local government and school boards in particular, boards have tremendous, um, you know, responsibility and they do have a great impact on members of their local community. Let's look at school boards as an example. So school boards do set the curriculum for their district. Now they have to do so within state learning standards. So they're not just, you know, deciding, hey, let's just uh, teach about this. I mean, they have to do, they have to meet the state learning standards, but they are given some flexibility in terms of how they meet that. And so there's uh, usually a curriculum development process uh, that is eventually makes its way to a board of education for approval. Property taxes. So obviously we have a tax cap in place, but boards have to decide how are they going to allocate funds? Are they going to try to exceed the cap? So that's a very important decision as well that impacts people. Also transportation, so determining bus routes for students, um, which students are going to you know, be picked up by a bus, which students are going to be walking. Uh, very important decisions. There's, they're involved in a whole host of very important decisions, even down to nutrition, you know, uh, cafeteria service, what's going to be served. You know, obviously, they don't make a lot of these decisions themselves, but they do flow through the board eventually in terms of funding and in terms of, um, you know, logistics. And I would also just add hiring a superintendent, very important decision uh, that a board makes that's going to determine, you know, kind of the, the, the 
school district tone and culture. So boards are very important, and I like to say that sometimes the decisions made by boards of education in your local community can have a greater impact on you than those made in Washington or Albany. You are hearing David Albert. He is the New York State School Board Association's Chief Communications and Marketing Officer, and we were just talking about the importance of school boards and joining your local school board and making a difference. Well, let's pick up on that for a minute. What about school safety here, David? I mean, we saw the horrific tragedy at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, of course, and you know there have been incidents in schools in New York, but the idea of how to solve this problem, where do we go from here? And you've got quite a different landscape if you look throughout New York, from the big city of New York City up to more rural areas in upstate New York. And obviously those variations will impact how school administrators and school boards and parents and teachers think about how to approach school safety. Are we becoming more militant in in the schools because of what's happening? You know, I don't know that I'd say we're becoming more militant. Schools are obviously a place of education, a place of learning. But that being said, school safety is always on the mind of board members and administrators. And so, yes, you know, they have to make sure that the school is a safe environment for students to learn. So we have seen an emphasis on school safety over the last several years. Since Parkland, we've seen a number of schools put in place school safety measures. We have the Smart Schools Bond Act here in New York State, which was, I believe, the funding could be used for safety initiatives. It's really a community type of decision because, as you mentioned, New York State is very diverse in terms of its school districts, and there isn't really a one-size-fits-all approach to school safety. In some cases, districts may decide to have school resource officers. So those school resource officers can be employees of the district, they can be members of the local police force, they can be unarmed, they can be armed. I mean, it really depends on the circumstances in the district. And in many cases, school districts make these types of decisions with input from the community because pretty much every school board in New York State has a public comment period during its board meetings where members of the public can talk about items on the agenda, talk about issues facing the school. So one way or another, the public is going to have a voice in these decisions. So school safety is, you know, again, multi-pronged approach. So you may have school resource officers. You may have what we call kind of hardening entrances so that you have to buzz in and buzz out. You can't just walk in through a door into a school. You could have bulletproof glass, metal detectors. You know, there's a lot of different things that districts can do. And in many cases, when we talk about school resource officers, one of the goals of a school resource officer is to really get to know the students. You know, if they saw someone maybe going down the wrong path, they might pull that student aside and say, you know, hey, this is not the direction you want to go in. So it's really a lot about prevention. And so we see a lot of districts that are using school resource officers. He is David Albert, New York State School Board Association's Chief Communications and Marketing Officer. David, thanks so much for taking all this time with us today. Thank you for having me. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2235. Or just listen online at wamc.org or schedule a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina. 